couple of pages back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and then I'm also going to be in Philippians chapter 4 a little bit today to show you a consistency of what Paul is expressing here. When we think about our culture when it, as it relates to how we esteem others, it's very, it doesn't, it doesn't take us long, rather, to go and find a person in this world that we would say, ah, I love that person. We appreciate that person. And then we can take it a step further and say, okay, not only that locally or intimately or personally, but we can find people that we've never met that we don't even know but we're aware of because maybe they're famous or popular. We like that politician or not. Or we like this musician. Or we like this movie star. Or we like this... Now we have a whole new genre of uh, popularity called influencer. You've got an influencer. Influencer. We're all influencers. And the more people that listen, the less influence we really do have, you know. But we can go also to spiritual things. I mean, oh, my pastor. Oh, my grandfather. Oh, my daddy. My auntie. My granddad. My grandma. My whoever. Oh, so-and-so. Doctor so-and-so. Reverend so-and-so. Theologian so-and-so. The author so-and-so. And we could just start to talk and collaborate and we can spend our entire lives esteeming others for what they have accomplished to such a degree that we can put Christ right underneath it all and drown him out. You see, that's the problem. We all have a little bit of an ego and sometimes our ego is driven by who we love who we admire, who we appreciate. Now, these things are normative, right? It's what we do. We're not going to stand here and go, stop having an ego. Okay. Stop breathing. All right. Don't be hungry. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. But what we are going to stand here to do is be reminded of the context from which Paul writes. The very nature of why the Bible is given to us is so that we may see and know the Lord divinely through the revelation that he's given. And then, as importantly, we learn what he has shown us through the, through the scriptures about how he handles and how he teaches and how he organizes and how he equips his people. And yet it's so easy to just say, I'll listen to what James has to say. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning because it's outside my normal safety net of flipping back into the different passages. You're going to have to test this. You see. Because not everything that we learn from God is specifically spelled out or explicitly spelled out in the context of a particular passage of Scripture. Now, I know that may sound contradictory to what I've been teaching you, but until we get the first part, we can't really move to the second part. If this is true, then, therefore, this logically makes good sense. If this is true, then how do we know that that's what Paul's talking about here? Because we have this over here to show us and to prove us. It's the same language. It's the same problem. It's the same issue. It's the same teaching. Beloved, we've got to stop looking at the Bible as a list of rules and regulations to live by and start looking at the Bible as it was intended to be understood, which is a catalog and a historical record of the revelation of God and how his people live and are taught so that we may learn and glean not just The theological things of the doctrines of Christ. You understand the doctrines of Christ by definition. That word, that term means the teachings of Christ. So the apostles, when they say, I charge you to do this, that's Christ 
teaching. That's the doctrines of Christ. And we don't conflate the gospel with good works. We know better. But yet we're so afraid because of so many popular ideas and we're so afraid of offending other folks in the context that that, that we esteem because we hold them to high esteem that we're fearful of speaking truthfully about the things of the Bible. We're fearful of asking questions because we're fearful of judgment. We're fearful because we'd rather be told what to think than to decipher what's good thinking. But yet we're all familiar with what? Be a Berean. You know the story of the Bereans? You know what, you know what that is? When, you see in, in, in Luke's writing, the Acts of the Apostles, and we see Paul, and he goes to Berea, the city, the town, the place, the region, whatever it is. And the people there, the Bereans, listen to what Paul had to say. And I'm like, okay, we shall pay close attention. We shall listen. We go agree. This is good. This is great. And then what does the Bible say about them? But they did not just believe Paul, open mouth, insert food, open brain, insert information, accept it. But they searched the scriptures, not to try to catch him in error, but to make sure that what he was saying was correct according to the scripture. And as Peter would say, that scripture is not given to us through all these different means and humanistic philosophies and everyone's own interpretation, but it is a divine gift. It is a divine record. It is a divine revelation. And so, beloved, there may be some things in your understanding that you're not quite grasping. And one of the reasons for that is because we tend to go after the ones we like who can teach us the best or whom we esteem. And I'm not saying we shouldn't esteem. If we go to, I'm going to read out of 1 Thessalonians 5 a little bit today. It does say to honor those and respect those who labor among you in the context of teaching, to admonish you. Well, beloved, you know what? Verse by verse teaching is important. Paul commands it. He commands that the letters be read to the church. He commands that the letters be read in your homes. So Christ commands it. But sometimes we have to pause in the midst of the context of what we're doing so that we can address something that's very important so that we are able to see exactly what it is the Bible is trying to show us. And that's not an error. It's not personal interpretation. It's not trying to prove something that's not in the Bible. And this is a lifelong journey, beloved. I've been studying the Bible For a very, very, very long time. A long time. Matter of fact, half the scripture that is in my memory is in the King James. Because that's what I grew up with. And when I say grew up with, my personal Bible. Not someone else telling me anything. Because believe it or not, contrary to popular thought, I did not grow up in church. We didn't grow up in church. But we were around the scripture. And the scripture is still sufficient. And Paul, with all this knowledge, with all this understanding, with all this education, is someone to be esteemed. So now we bring the point to the point of today's point. We should esteem the apostles, but we should esteem them not. Because they point to Christ. And their very teaching says to esteem Christ, not them. The whole occasion of the first letter to the Corinthians is that Paul is trying to establish in their minds that they are sinful and selfish and self-serving. Because they are esteeming others more important than others. And they're esteeming themselves more important than others. And it is causing great division. And some of them were bragging. Well, I studied under this person. I came to faith under this person. You know how significant that is? That's of the person who brought you to the truth? None. 
Because if it pleased the Father, He could have brought you to salvation through Balaam's ass. I have to use that phrase because it's the only biblical fitting. Balaam's donkey for the children to go in. <gasps> yeah. That's what the King James Bible says. Because it, it shocks our system. What? Yes. Even the imagery of the latter days that even the rocks and the trees will cry out the revelation of Christ. If it pleased the Father. But what does it please the Father? To bring His people to the knowledge of the truth. What is that truth? His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the God-man in the world. Died and rose to life. Saving His people from their sins. And the divine gift of faith rests in Him as the true Sabbath, as the God of creation, as the Savior of His people. And that is the foundation of gospel belief. And then God does something amazing through our growing. Sometimes when we're really, really young and sometimes when we're really, really old. But He teaches us when we are disciplined to study the Word of God. Not study our popular, famous theologians. Our favorite pastors and preachers. Our favorite YouTube channels or blogs. The scripture. And see, that's what's wrong. Is that we are all good at the fast food theology. At the quick and easy. At the I need the answers. That's why Q&A has always been so popular in my ministry. Because everybody wants the answer. But the answer always must come contextually. It's amazing, though, at the number of questions that even I have answered, just personally. And how many times, week after week after week, we get the same type of question. We got a question yesterday, this long question about the Trinity. Long question from the church website. Long. And I'm going, have we not answered this? So I send it to a good buddy who's an expert in that field, and he goes, I've already answered that guy twice this month. <laughs> Same question. I said, well, good. Forward the answer back to him and say, Tippins, ditto. We love the answers, but we don't want to learn. And when we do want to learn, we think that we're supposed to read the letter, go to bed, wake up a genius, and have it all. Listen, God will not show you the depths of the truth, you cannot learn about election until you study election. Let me say that again. You cannot learn and understand election until you study election. You cannot learn about sovereignty and understand sovereignty until you study sovereignty. Because when we study the scriptures, then we do what? We think about the scriptures and then the Holy Spirit through the process of His people when we are humbly disciplined to seek after Christ, not the trivial pursuit of His facts and figures, God will patiently teach us. And then what happens with that teaching? Then we get some wild idea and we think because we're thinking type creatures, right? When I've got a dog at home, he's not, she's not thinking about anything but instinctively wondering where am I going to show up with a bowl of food? That's it. Food, food, food. He's not, you know, the food that they gave me yesterday was a little bland compared to the food that I had the day before. We think. And because we think... We are, sus we are susceptible to error. We are susceptible to opinions that may or may not match up with what the Bible would then teach and correct us in. So then God, in His absolute amazing mercy, comes alongside us, and not only through what we can learn in our Scripture, in the Scripture alone, but we can also together collectively share with one another what we're thinking and how we're feeling and that we are patiently guided by the Lord through His Word to be directed to the truth and corrected in our error. And that is why Paul sent this letter to Timothy so that he could say, these beloved brothers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, of whom, for whom Christ threw His body into the grave, are dividing the church through their crazy 
opinion, which is the definition of heresy. And they've gone too far, and you need to charge the people who have followed their suit to shush and settle down. Paul wanted it all to settle down. And then the Lord would teach them all. But we can't make judgments on these people. Don't don't say you know anything about Alexander. We don't know. And I'm not an apostle. But I am an elder by the grace of God and the command of Christ. And the command of Paul. And the affirmation of the church. You're not an elder if you don't have a church. You're just a preacher. And a preacher without oversight is just teaching something. Good, teach, great, that's awesome. But how would you feel if I were 19, never married, and doing a marriage seminar? Who's going to sign up for that? The high schoolers. Yeah, let's talk about marriage. (laughs) This guy knows what he's talking about. He's got a girlfriend. He held her hand last week. Sent her roses, and she didn't like the color. He's got conflict management skills. I don't want to hear from that. I don't want. You know, I don't want to go to the. I don't want to go to the veterinarian for my brain tumor. Smart guy, couldn't do it. Brilliant. Beloved, we can't make judgments. Because you know what judgments are? Final standings. Let me say that again. A judgment is a final standing. This is this. What is this? Is it a microphone? Can we prove it? By what evidence? By the science behind it. By the historical Facts and figures that show from the very first time where these things were developed and designed and created, we can say, okay, and then when we finally make that judgment, we can say, this is what it is. It's not a Q-tip. It would not even fit into my ear. It's not a Q-tip for a donkey. It's not a Q-tip for an elephant. It's not a COVID test. No. It's a microphone. We can make a judgment. That's a final, final unchangeable decree who can make judgments the one who knows all things so when God makes judgments either declaratively in his word or theologically through teaching he has the right to do so Christ has the right to do so when Christ made judgments and gave the apostles the right to make judgments he did so through divine wisdom And nobody else in the scripture has ever been charged with the ability to make final judgments. But we do make discernment. We do have discerning judgment. We do have these lightweight things. So there's a manifold way in which the, the word and the term can be used and understood. We need to understand that about language. Language is living. It works according to the culture. It transforms based on the people using the terms and what everybody's trying to say. My fluency in French wanes every day that I don't speak it. So I've turned, accidentally turned my uh, Alexa into French, so now it's going to sharpen me just a little bit. So I'll know how to turn on white noise and play piano music and hush and stop and quit. No, no, stop, stop. I mean, you know, we'll get those words down. I did not say anything to you. Siri would be the same way. But the more I, 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 less separated, I'm, I'm, and then I thought, well, you know what? I want to look and listen to some French. So I get online, and I listen to some French videos. don't even know what they are, and I'm thinking, I've watched French movies. It's different. The vernacular of present-day modern French, I would look like an idiot trying to speak to these people in that language. My friends that live in Quebec and speak Quebecois, We can write letters to one another, but I can't understand a thing they say. They don't understand me, even when I speak English. (laughs) It's a joke. What's the point? Things change. Terms and definitions 
are organic and they change. And so when we make judgments, if I call this a schwimmadiggy and it's not what it is, but it's what I've always called it, it's still true in the context in which I came from. But because we are always in our flesh a little bent toward the tendency to be right in our own way, we are easily swayed to fall into the trap of what? Selfish, prideful, I know it all. Well, if there was a man in the Bible that knew it all, it was certainly Paul. And Paul has a reason every time he writes a letter that he has to undergird his authority with the expressions and with the teaching and the recapitulation, that means to repeat himself over and over again about the authority he has as an apostle and that he was called as an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because he did not fit the definition of an apostle in the first century. He fit not the definition. He did not fit the criterion. He did not fit the definition. He did not fit the, 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 the expectation. He didn't fit it at all. So he was not, according to the definition of the apostles, an apostle. Yet he became an apostle because God declared him one. What was the definition? Well, those who had spent time with the risen Lord and then sent and commissioned to be his messengers. Paul wasn't part of that number, was he? No, Paul was the guy on the other side of the fence trying to destroy these people, trying to arrest them, trying to put them in prison, trying to murder their families, trying to upset the way because, being, believe it or not, the word Christian was a pejorative term that it labeled you as a nutcase, as a heretic. The word Christian meant you were a heretic, blasphemer of God. What does it mean today? Got Jesus in my pocket. <laughs> I don't know what it means. Until I moved out west, I never met anybody that would say that they weren't a Christian to some degree. Because everybody down here was one. Just ask. So Paul, he had it going on. But then yet what? What happens? Paul received mercy. Policy mercy. And that's where we are today. We're still talking about the grace of God. And Paul didn't come to this amazing academic understanding of grace. Paul didn't study really, really, really hard and then all of a sudden figure out that all of his years of studying as a Pharisee resulted in his resting faith, his security, his confidence that he might be able to know now that he has eternal life because he's put it all the pieces together and he's finally seen it for what it really needs to be. Ta-da! Wrote 25 books, started a YouTube channel. Now everybody that does exactly as Paul does and thinks exactly as Paul thinks is a Christian. Nobody else is. That wasn't Paul's journey, was it? Matter of fact, Paul's journey was in the midst of all of his absolutely superlative knowledge and understanding of the prophets and everything that he did with the, with, the, with the greatest of zeal and perfection as he lived his life according to his own testimony to the Philippians, blameless according to the law. He was persecuting the Christian church. He was persecuting those gathered. He was persecuting and having arrested and destroyed and even put to death those who followed Christ. By faith. And now, whatever it was that these guys were doing in Ephesus, they were upsetting the faith of some. And they had not love. And Paul had all right to be the big daddy. Like he even said to the Corinthians, I need to come down there with a stick. Can you imagine? I've seen that type of ministry before where the pastor had a stick in a you know, metaphorical sense. And he was really skillful. Not necessarily hitting people with it, but just sort of putting it right out there. Like grandma with that fly flap. She didn't have to swing it. Just hold it up. 
Just hold it up. Cross-country trips, I had a little thing that I cut off the edge of the rubber floor mat called the tab. It even said it tab, remove before use. And I could just hold it up in the car. We'd be about Texas and just hold it up. Driving from San Francisco, kids get a little rowdy. Just hold it up. It's like Moses parting the Red Sea. All the noise went away. Just hold it up. And beloved, that's not shepherding. That's fear-mongering. That's, that's lording over people. And we, in turn, as recipients of grace, cannot be that way. Yet there is a time when authority must be put in its proper place and that the authority that is divine must be adhered to because it is what is good for our joy. So when Paul would write a letter, that was authoritative. He would even say in several times in some of his letters that those who don't do what I tell you to do in this letter regard them not as a brother. Now that doesn't mean they're lost. He means you don't live together in harmony. You ostracize them and say, we're not going to hang out anymore until you get this straight. Why? Because that's the instruction. That's the instruction. And so Paul had a reason to be prideful, didn't he? He had a reason to boast. Well, what does he say? Look at verse 12. In accordance with verse 11, you know, you teach people to walk away, to not do anything that's contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of glory, the blessed God, of the blessed God with which I've been instructed. And then Paul says, I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to the service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's all we're going to do today. We're going to expound on this reality. The text preaches itself. We've heard it, you've, you've read it, and that's it. You see what he's teaching. Basically, I'm a bad person, and I fought against Christ, and I hated him, and I hated his people, and I hated everything that related to grace. Because you see, this is the point, right? This is the point that where Pharisees and Sadducees, the... the, the these, these Jewish leaders, the reason they hated Christ so much is because they were the epitome of correctness. They were the epitome of walking in a manner worthy of God. They were the ones who had the theological chops to establish the foundations. They understood Moses. They understood all of the prophets. They understood these things. They knew the prophecy. But they had moved out of a place of humility into a place of humanity. And that humanistic thinking has put them in charge of God. They knew who he was and then they would teach others what he was and what he would do for them. And nobody else could say, well, uh, can I ask a question? Because if you asked a dumb question, they threw you out on your behind. And then you couldn't buy food. And then you couldn't own a business. And then you couldn't come to the services. And then you couldn't do this. And then your family was ostracized. And then you became a no-bad and you had to go live with the Gentiles. Then you were a wicked, evil dog. Goodbye, society. Just for asking a dumb question. And there is no such thing as a dumb question. Publicly. Ask. That's what happened. That's what's going on. And Paul was at the center of it. He was the guy who fought against Rome, obstinately supervising the stoning of Stephen. Because Stephen questioned their understanding of grace. And it all boils, boils down to this one issue 
of the righteousness of God, which is the whole point that creation exists, that God's righteousness is not only viewed and visible and understood and known, but that it is upheld. And the gospel, the good report, the good news of Jesus shows us that God is gracious to his people, no matter who they are. If they're his people, he is gracious to them. And when he is gracious to them, they rest in him. Because apologetics in the context of showing people the facts will never change a heart. Debating will never, ever, beloved, let me tell you something. I'm going to say something here. It might hurt somebody's conscience. But debating will never cause regeneration. If any of you hope, hope in the gospel because somebody debated you and won and you lost the debate and now you see the truth, you have not been born again. Your hope is in the debate and not in Jesus. And I know that seems like a subtle thing, but it's not to be taken lightly. Because you know who could not lose a debate? Paul. You know, even as an apostle, he has all authority to tell, and he does, and he's strong in his words. And if you read Galatians, you know he's strong. And he said some things to those people that he probably regretted, yet it was divinely appointed for him to say them, and God established it for his purposes. But in Paul's heart, reading him, I know he's thinking, I was too harsh to these guys. So here is an example of how elders and pastors must handle things in the church. This letter is written to Timothy, an elder. So therefore, elders must take this as a prescription. And then you as the church, as the members, this is not a private instruction. This is a public instruction. Not only are we as elders supposed to handle things this way, you are to understand how these things are to be handled so that you can be a Berean and go, okay, pastor, are you doing it according to the word of God? If not, ask questions, and there are no dumb questions. Then the word of God will teach us all how we ought to handle things appropriately, and then we walk together in joy, and we walk together in unity because God has brought us divinely back to the gospel of grace and we rejoice we don't take the gift of God's unity and reconciliation and go wait a minute chop it in half again and separate until we get our own reconciled consciences we accept what God has done Paul just wants reconciliation those who refuse his instruction of reconciliation are to be refused you see? And there's something that I've realized that I don't have as a gift. You know what it is? Omniscience. I don't have it. And you might think, well, did you ever think you had it? No. I will never admit it, but as I start to look back at all the things that I think, that I thought I knew, I really thought I was omniscient. How do you know that? Mm, I just know. You ever said that? I just know. Why? Well, where do you get that? What evidence? Well, I just don't trust. Well, I'm just thinking. Well, I bet you if you, if you saw. I bet you if you saw flames in pastor's left ear, he'd have fire. Well, friends, this is that devoting ourselves to myths and different doctrines and genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, the whole gospel experience is stewardship. Paul was nothing, a heretic, a blasphemer, but yet he was the pinnacle of religious order. And God made him a steward of the gospel. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and by, like the rest of humanity, by nature, objects of wrath. But God made us stewards of the gospel. He gave us grace. And because he acted in that way toward us, it is always effectual. We came to believe the truth. And now we're getting started to learn that truth more and more. Now what, I've gotten out of saying this, but I've always said that, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. People are so quick to be contrary. And we are so quick in our nature to say, oh, but he didn't say this. It doesn't matter. Paul never exclusively in any of his writings establishes a gospel presentation that's holistic. Have you noticed that? 
Jesus, in His preaching, never goes through all the different things at one time in one preaching sermon. And then what do we do in our hubris? Yes, but what we know is that they knew what they knew. And we know what they knew and that what they had and what we have and what they know. And now we're all lost. We don't even have a clue what we're talking about. So we think we're omniscient. We're running around acting like we know what somebody else really knows and what somebody else really doesn't know. And it doesn't matter. What the question is, is does God know you? Does Christ know you? Did He know you when He died on the cross? Did He know you when He raised Himself from the grave? Has He loved you forever? Before you were, has God loved you forever? See, that's the gospel. Those whom He loved eternally foreknew. That's what it means. He predestined, He decreed, He established a covenant that He would cause them to be in the likeness of His Son. Perfect, divinely, glorious, righteous. How is that? Because it's not ours, it's His. He credits us with His own essence. Righteousness. And all the, all the awesomeness therein. So here's Paul, appointed to the service of Christ as a slave. He has no grounds for what? Boasting. But yet, that's what we do. We boast for others. A pastor so-and-so, teacher so-and-so, theologian so-and-so, article so-and-so, this or that or that and this. And it's obvious. You know why? Because it, 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 we, we flit around. Oh, this is our favorite. Oh, this is our favorite. Oh, this is our favorite. What about that? I don't like them anymore. Oh, this is the man of God. No, he's not a man of God anymore. Oh, this is the truth. No, it's not the truth anymore. What does that teach our children? That we're idiots. That's what it teaches our children. This is the best. Eh, I was wrong. This is the best. Eh, I was wrong. That we have no wisdom. That we jump around from one thing to another. The question is, is your gospel constantly changing? Is your esteem for theology constantly moving? Is your needle back and forth? James talks about that, doesn't he? It's a lack of wisdom. Being tossed like a leaf in the wind or a wave of the sea throwing a leaf. To and fro with every wind of doctrine, every iteration, every new distinction, constantly adding and adding and adding until before long you know what John Bunyan was thinking when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. You know what was on the back of, the, of Christian? Theological distinctions and garbage and history. <laughs> no, we know. I'm joking for those of you who cherish that writing. When my children are real little, that's how I put them to sleep. I read them, Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think we've ever gotten halfway through the book. We're weighted down. It's just a new law. Every time we come up with a new idea or a new opinion that is demanded of others, it is just a new law. Because it's not Christ. Paul does not boast in his place. Paul does not boast in in his knowledge. Paul does not boast in his understanding. Paul does not boast in his authority. Paul does not boast. What does he say? I thank him. How can Paul be so congenial in the midst of such turmoil? Because Christ is his strength. Christ is enough. The grace of God is sufficient. You know why so many people are so wound up so many times? When they're younger, not only is the frontal lobe not developed and they have no empathy, they also have no understanding. I'm not saying that to be derogatory. That's a biological fact. But they haven't suffered enough to be humbled. Some people have. But for the most part, when we're younger, we haven't experienced enough pain. We haven't been taught through the experiences of God's gracious Awesome gifts of suffering to his people. Everything's great. So this great outlook. Because what's the first time that really something goes bad when we're young? What's the first thing we do? We blame somebody. But well, that ain't right. That shouldn't be happening to me. <laughs> yes, it should. Welcome to life. Welcome to life. 
Timothy, the youngest, youngest elder in the Bible. I bet he wasn't 20. And this poor guy <laughs> sat over the entire city of Ephesus. And not only that, was Paul's protege. Can you imagine? And here comes that boy. Here comes that boy. Watch out, here's the child. What's up, squirt? I bet they caught him stuff like I mean, you know, if it was today, messing up his hair. What's up, you go teach us something from the Bible? I mean, you know, oh, ain't that cute. Real patronizing, condescending, all at the same time. That's Paul's boy right there. Better listen. I mean, this is, the, this is the nature of humanity. Nothing's changed. The words we say have changed, but nothing's changed. Paul doesn't boast. He boasts in Christ. He boasts in grace. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength, our Lord, the Christ, Jesus, because He judged me faithful. Now, is Paul saying there he's faithful? No. Paul's saying that God declared him faithful. Was Paul faithful? He was faithfully wrong, faithfully sinful, faithfully lost, sincerely blind. But then God, in His creative work, in His grace, said, you are faithful. Did He do it to Moses? It's a picture. You're faithful. He did it to Abram. You're faithful. And what did these men do? Failed. We're never faithful because their strength was not them. Their strength was Him. So we boast in what God has done. We boast in what Christ has done. We boast in the grace of God who appoints us to His service. And the cool thing about it is we're all wondering. This is in the beginning days of ministry, 22 years ago, you know, when, when we first step out to be full-time pastors, you know. We are so arrogant. And we don't even know it. Humble brag, piety. Oh, Lord, thank you so much. But what we're saying is, thank you, you've equipped me in such a way, I'm going to go out here and take this world by storm. With your help, of course. It's what we think. Jeremy, am I right? <laughs> you know? I mean, it's what we do. And we don't realize we're doing that until God puts us in the ditch two or three times. Or cuts our ears off. Or chops our heads off. And then we can go, you appointed me to your service. Do you know what that means? You will drink the cup that Christ drank from. You know what else it means? There is an order in which I call my servants. And it's right here. And if it's not here, addressed to you in your role, with your authority, you don't get to do it and say you're serving me. And as an elder, that's sort of my job to oversee that kind of nonsense. What are you doing? Let's talk about what you're trying to accomplish. And it's usually innocent zeal, right? I just want to stand for truth. Good. I need you to go over here and clean those bathrooms. And then when you get back, I'm going to give you a list of things to pray for. And then I want you to read the book of Ephesians Every day for the next six days. And then Sunday, we're going to talk about these things. And then I'm going to ask some questions related to what you think God has taught you that you need to be doing. And I promise you, what you were planning is not in the list. Paul was a blasphemer. Insolent opponent. You know, when we don't have love for one another, we're insolent to God. When we're not patient, we're insolent to God. When we're not willing to lay aside our own judgments and listen, we're insolent to God. But you know who wasn't insolent? Jesus Christ. Though he was God in the flesh, he did not take his divineness, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, obedient unto death, death on a cross as a slave, as a criminal. Therefore God highly exalted him, that a, he has the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and every tongue will tell the truth that Jesus is the Lord.
Today, yesterday, and forever, he always has been the Lord of everything. But I received mercy because I was blind. I was ignorant of righteousness. I was ignorant of truth. Sometimes I think our culture would rather cut the heads off of unbelievers than rejoice in their salvation. And that makes us no better than the Pharisees who were blind and lost. In verse 14, Paul says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. That's what the grace of God does. Anytime God's grace is mentioned or effective in the Scripture, it talks about Him saving somebody, showing them the truth, establishing with them the promises that He has fulfilled in Christ Jesus, empowering them to not only believe, but to rest and to see and to be strengthened in a time of trouble, to know that they have an advocate in their time of need, to know that they can go bold before the throne of their dad, God the Father, and say, Father, Daddy, because of what Christ has done. And the grace of the Lord, when given to His people, it is an overwhelming and irresistible and overflowing, a powerful and an effectual work. Like I said last week, God doesn't have a pocket full of grace and He sprinkles it. It's not some magic thing that God has. He is. And when He acts mercifully... It means He bestows favor, and that favor flows from the cross. It was there at the cross. It was there at creation. And there is a people that God has affection for from the foundation of the world that He will save for Himself. And we understand that contextually and exegetically. That means out of the text, contextually, same, same word basically. One has to do with expression and, 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 and interpretation. The other is just simple is that God's grace saves His people. And that's why Paul couples it with overflowing with me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So I'm resting in the work of Christ. Paul talks about that same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says we have security, we have hope. And in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And there's a context there, and I read it pre-service. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. The grace of God is God's faithfulness and love toward His people to show them what He has done in Christ And this faith and love is then gifted to His people. We have faith and we have love for Him. And we have love for Him. Evidence that our love is for one another. And that is a discipline, not a feeling. We are able to forgive as a discipline, not a feeling. Beloved, you will always have resentment in your heart when you're reminded about the the pain. Right? But the discipline of grace, the gracious discipline that God gives us and strengthens us with by reminding us over and over again of the gospel and what Christ accomplished for us and that He and His obedience alone is our hope. Therefore now, because we have received mercy, let us walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The foundations of that and the only thing that we need to concern ourselves with at all in the life that we live, whether we live to be 400 years old, is that we are gracious toward others, our enemies and our brothers, and that we speak the truth in a context of love for the believers so that we may serve them, thus serving Christ, and love them through our service, thus loving Christ, so that we know, because that we know, The love of God for us. And Paul doesn't say anything differently than what I just said here in 1 Thessalonians. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. This is our guard. This is our our armor. We guard our hearts. I'm going to go over to Philippians 4 in a minute. The helmet of the hope of our salvation, our thinking, 
our affection, our actions. We are trusting in the sufficiency of Christ, and we are trusting in the teaching of Christ that we can walk in this way and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Well, I'm just not good enough. Amen. Yes. Now you finally tell the truth. Not only are you not good enough, you're trying to pretend that you're good enough, and you're hiding because you know that you're not good enough, and the man that you're living with is your husband, so that's not good enough. You see? These things that pop out of my mouth are, are, are most oftentimes contextual. John 4. I perceive that you are a prophet. The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet for your mind, for your thinking, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us so that whether we are awake, whether we're alive, or whether we're asleep, whether we're dead, we might live with him. Therefore, you see, see how we want to stop there and become experts. See how we want to stop there and then esteem the experts. Oh, why is it that we're esteeming all these secondary experts anyway? Paul was the expert and he esteemed himself not. So we're blaspheming Christ. Let's stop doing that. Therefore, what are we supposed to be doing then, pastor? Give us something to do. Here it is. And I bet you I'm going to be very hyperbolic. There's a million places in the New Testament where the therefores will again give instructions about love and faith. Therefore, encourage one another. That's for us, beloved. Encourage one another. And I won't talk about the means through which I've started to have these thoughts and, and, and ideas, but beloved, I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago. I'm not the same person I was two years ago. I'm bitter and cynical and suspicious. And you know what you don't do when those are true? Encourage anybody. Because you don't want anybody to be anything but at arm's length. Why would you say such a thing? Why am I going to lie to you? Aren't you? Anxiety? I used to like sympathize in some sense, you know, you know, anxious. And it's like PTSD? What the world? How can I have PTSD on something simple? Because anxiety is no respecter of persons or circumstances. Now, I'm not diagnosed with that, I'm just using that as a reference, please. Therefore, encourage one another. What does that mean? Encourage. I have a new puppy, so it's fresh in my mind. What the first thing you teach a puppy? To come to you. If the dog doesn't recall, it's worthless. It's going to do what it wants to do. Come here. Come here. What do you do? You lure it. You tempt it. You beg it. You lay on the ground. You scream. You go, hey, come on. You do anything. You do jumping jacks. You do stars. You do snow angels in the air. Whatever it takes to get the dog to come to you. Oh, that's exciting. Let's go. Encourage. There's no negative connotation to encouragement. There's no rebuke in the midst of it. It doesn't go. It does, encouragement is not, hey, come on over here. Boom. Ha, sucker. Now stop acting like a boom. I mean, that's not encouragement. That's not what we do. Encouragement is always positive teaching, positive movement to do something better. You can do this, church. Why? Because you are in Christ. I know you're hurt, but work to forgive. I'll walk with you. Come on, let's go. I know you're struggling with this doctrine. I know these false teachers have gotten in your head. I know that you have an illness in your body, but I want to build you up. Build one another up, just as you were doing. You notice, Paul never taught the Thessalonians they were doing anything wrong. He actually told them that their love had spread wide and far. Their life 
and the way they lived in the gospel had spread wide and far to the point that people were talking about them and gossiping about them and speculating about them. And that when they showed up in the other places and the other regions and other cities, that people would come and say, y'all the apostles, what's going on in Thessalonica? That they didn't even have to introduce the purposes there. They're thinking, if you can reform these people, man, come on in, let's hear it. I want to hear what's going on because there's some great stuff going on down there. What is the church known for today? Politics, political division, theological fodder, isolation, separation, divorce, pride. What's Christ known for? That. That's the Christ we display. Because we are safe in Him, because our righteousness is not our own, but it is His, because we are clothed in the blood of Christ, let us encourage one another and build one another up. This is our business. And so when we see the rebuke, correct, teach, instruct, it's a lifelong journey of patience for the elders of the church to instruct the church and to rebuke when necessary. But yet even then, you can't rebuke an older man. I can't rebuke an older brother. What does a rebuke look like? It's a, correct, it's a swift correction. The point of rebuke is it's a swift correction. Hey, hey, that's not okay. Don't talk about that. Don't think that way. Don't, don't put your finger in your nose. That's nasty. You see? That's a rebuke. An encouragement would be, man, you got clean hands, man. Don't, you know, don't mess them up like that. But the whole point of even rebuke is unto a swift correction. Mm-mm. Survey says, ooh, that don't work. Hey, come here, let's talk about it. Then we go right into the encouraging and to the building up, which is love. And beloved, we can't, we can't teach people who can't see this truth. Because I believe so many people who are in grace are arrogantly in grace. I am the recipient of grace. I have the knowledge of grace. I know what I know. You see? Wow, that sounds like me. Maybe it does. Maybe it sounds like me too. Isn't that what we are? These things should not be. So we rejoice. Look down at verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. First he talks about respecting the teachers. Because it's a hard job. Be at peace amongst yourself. That's a commandment. Be at peace amongst yourself. Why? Because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And I urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. What does that mean? Hey, guys. Admonishment, by definition, has a, has a, has the, a flavor of warning. A little bit of warning. Hey, man, you're sitting still. You're going to fall asleep. Hey, man. Look, man. We need you. Don't, don't do that. Come over here. That's not a rebuke. Admonish. Admonish the idol. Get people busy serving. Get people busy praying. Get people busy loving. You ain't got to be involved in everything, but be involved with someone. Encourage the faint-hearted. What's that mean? Exactly what it says. Draw them up. Get them up. Let's go. Hey, I know it's downtrodden. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But look, Christ is King. We are saved by grace. God has granted us faith. We are okay. We are going to be okay. How do you know? Because the Bible shows us person after person after person after person after person after person. Then Jesus himself encouraged the faint-hearted. The preaching is that he'll be the wind on which we soar. Help the weak. I've been so weak at times physically that, you know, you ever been so weak you just couldn't get up out of a chair? It's usually when I'm in the truck when I find that time. It's like, gosh, I can't even open the door. It's a horrifying thing when you're that weak. You can't open the door to get out. You need somebody to help you. 
When you're weak, you need somebody to help you. That's our job. Be patient with them all. And do that by not repaying evil with evil. But seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Seek to do good then, back to Timothy, to Alexander and Hymenaeus and all the people who were disheveled on their situation. And if they don't, if they don't, if they don't receive that, let them go. And pray that God will bring them back. And they'll say, I'm so sorry. I know that I was messing up the truth. But ultimately, in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5, we see the same reality. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Because I know... Here at the end of our service, I know what a lot of us are thinking. We're going, okay, I hear the instruction. I know and understand the gospel. I know where I am before the Lord. And I know that this is not a requisite of anything except that my joy is fuller when I'm walking by faith and serving. So what do I do? What do I do? And next week, we're really going to hit on the anxiety that Timothy probably had and that Paul has had. And that we are experiencing now as a culture and as a people. And that many of us are probably crippled by sometimes. Myself included. What do we do? We pray. We turn our thoughts and our self-talk to the Lord. We talk to Him. And most importantly, we thank Him. I thank you, Paul says. I thank Him who gives me strength. I thank Him who judged me faithful. God has judged us faithful to be servants amongst the body for each other. It doesn't matter if you don't feel gifted or called or directed or sufficient. Because we're not. We're not. I'm not sufficient. You aren't sufficient. We're okay. We're in the same bowl. And that is the bowl of grace. That is the lap of God. That is the arms of hope that God's grace and love for us has established us before him there is nothing that we can do well or do poorly that changes our place before the father so we can thank him we can thank him on days where we just don't care and we can thank him on days when we feel like we're the next best thing to the apostle paul not that we should but we can and we can rejoice when we're able to say praise the lord isn't this a great day and we're able to rejoice when we can't, when we can say nothing at all. Because God has established salvation through Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Because that's what He came to do. And when we entreat others who may be in sin or may be in error or may even be unconverted with disdain and frustration and haughtiness, we may very well be blaspheming Christ because we are treating one of our siblings that has yet to come to the truth with disdain. That's why everywhere we see encourage and build and love and serve, there's always the caveat, actually it'll be an addition, an encouragement, and your enemies, and those who persecute you, and those, and everyone else. And that's the timbre, that's the sound, that's, that's the nature of Paul's song in his writing, to sing it. To sing it and to do the work that we've been called to. Because Christ has finished the work that he was called to. And he never complained. And he never ever disobeyed. And that is how we stand before our Father today. By his obedience. Let's pray. Lord as you know our hearts and minds can only absorb so much and Father my mind is so many places right now so many things that 
that I want to clarify and say, but Lord, by your mercy and grace, what has been said is what you intended. And so we thank you, Father, that you are sovereign. Lord, bring about the purposes for all that we experience. For your glory and for your name. And Father, for our good. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering in their flesh and dealing with circumstances beyond their control. Heal their bodies and their minds. Heal their hearts. Give them joy. Heal their headaches and their backaches. Heal their heartaches and their brokenness. Father, restore marriages. Give joy to our children. Wipe away the depression. Eliminate the confusion and give clarity. Father, give us the discipline of love and service. Help us to grow in forgiveness. Lord, that we might live this life in peace with others. And Father, continue to arrest us. That when we think we're walking well, to remind us that it doesn't matter how well we do. That it doesn't change your scale. The good or the bad deeds all weigh the same. And that, Father, the weight of the cross of Christ is the only thing that will take us home. His righteousness for us. And we thank you, Lord, that in his body and in his blood we have forgiveness of sins. Teach us. And help us to be patient as you were patient with us. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.